Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by the Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Tapping into the Human, in which we have a really special guest, Rich Clune, who is Captain of the Marlies, which I'm a big fan of, and the star of the documentary about his life, addiction, and recovery called Hi, I Am Dickie. So, Rich, it's super nice to have you on today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Alex. Yeah, for sure. So, can you give us a little bit of an overview of who you are? I know I was just talking to you offline, but um, I got to watch your documentary about a month and a half ago. It was really inspiring. It was, you know, all about your life, how hard you work to be in the NHL, your whole story with addiction and recovery. Can you give us a little bit of synopsis for those who might not be familiar with your story? Yeah. Um, first off, it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. For sure. And the film, um, Hi, My Name is Dickie, was made by two filmmakers here in Toronto, well, a team of filmmakers here in Toronto, Taylor Prestige and um, Harris Usanovich, and the rest of their crew. And um, I wouldn't say that it's a complete like life story, and that's not something that I was at all interested in doing. I think right. the, the least interesting parts about people are you know, all the, the things. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't interested in doing something like that, but their approach I did, in, I did think was cool. You know, they picked kind of a moment in time and then sort of expanded out. And it, it basically, if I were to sum it up, um, starts from a moment in time where my brother, Matt, who is my younger brother, I have three brothers, Matt and Ben, uh, he's my middle brother, my younger brother, Matt, and I are driving in a car and um, he is basically transporting us both from uh, the US to Canada. And I'm in the thralls of my addiction, kind of in the acute phases of withdrawal. And um, he's basically getting me to the doors of a treatment facility, which was my second time uh, entering treatment for drugs and alcohol. And then it just goes from there and it, it kind of goes back and forth through a little bit of my childhood to give you a bit of a brief background of where I, I grew up and then sort of my journey through hockey and then my experience with addiction. And um, it's a well done film. I haven't seen it from start to finish in its entirety, but I've seen good chunks of it at a time and rough cuts. And um, I think they did a really good job. Um, and there's been a lot of positive feedback and I'm really proud of the filmmakers and what they did. And I didn't want it to be like a complete, you know, reveal of my whole, mm -hmm. because I just feel like some of that doesn't need to be told, but um, just enough for people to connect and, uh, you know, it's done well, it's raised, you know, money for, it's raised money for addictions, much like what you're doing with your nonprofit. And uh, I was proud of it. No, that's amazing. And I, I mean, I'm proud of it too. And I think obviously you had to be really vulnerable to be able to kind of talk about everything and give the world a sneak peek into your life. 
What was sort of that decision like? Did they, you know, hear about your story and approach you? Did you hem and haw? Did you know right away, hey, this is something I want to do? Like, what made you finally decide, I want my story to be out there? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, so in, I think 2000, and I'll just give you like, sort of like a, my own uh, perspective on how I think it kind of unfolded, but I wrote an article with the Players Tribune, which is a website started by Derek Jeter. And I, I'm probably leaving other people out, but it's essentially like a platform for professional athletes to share personal stories. And, you know, they get professional writers to work with you and help you write it. And, it, and, and it's very well done. Great website. And I was approached by them to do an article. Um, a friend of mine who also was an athlete had just published an article through them and kind of put me in touch. And I think that was the first time that uh, a lot of people specifically in the hockey world learned about me. I was playing for Nashville Predators uh, full time. So uh, more people would listen. And, um, and Taylor Prestige, who was the director and, and, you know, the, the writer of the, of the film about myself had read that article way back, never, never meeting me. And then I got introduced to his sister, Caitlin, who um, through another friend, uh, a friend of ours named Michelle Murphy, who, who um, is a very like dear friend of mine. So they, she introduced us and then it was one of those things. She's like, my brother's a filmmaker. He's always talked about you. I've literally heard him say, I'd love to do a film on Rich. Wow. And started from there. And I didn't have any interest in doing a film about that just because I had had a bit of experience speaking publicly about my story. And anytime you do that, it's good when you're still alive because you can reframe things you said. And, and like, I'm in the hockey world, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I'm very old now. I'm almost 35, but in the grand <laughs> scheme of life, I'm aware I'm very young. Right. And my uh, perspectives and my, and my, thoughts and and experience is always changing and when you speak on something like addiction and and all the things that go into it a it's impossible for me to even you know scratch the surface of what it's all about and b it's always changing from day to day so if I said one thing one day you know things would be different and even for me to speak is like yeah um so I, I just, I was just, I just knew that if I said one thing one year, two years later, I'm going to be sitting there saying, I, I have no idea what I was talking about. That's not what I meant. And then two different companies had reached out or production companies or filmmakers at the time. And it was like, I was hit with like two, three different opportunities. And so then I kind of was like, oh, maybe this is, you know, something I should explore. And then it just came down to me feeling comfortable with them, um, appreciating their work, their vision. And um, yeah, so that was kind of it. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. And I, I'm sure the feedback that you've received has probably been amazing. And people saying, you know, it's inspiring. I mean, I know for sure on, on my end it is. And I think the most important thing is, you know, in the movie, you talk about sort of a duality, right? Like living two different lives, you know, one where there's off the ice and what you were doing and then one on the ice and being working at such a high caliber. 
Um, and obviously, I think because of the stigma of addiction, people unfortunately view um, someone who's in active addiction as lazy and choosing and all these sort of things. But you basically turn that narrative on its head because you are able to play at such a high level. And my question to you was, how did you manage to do that? Because I know that was difficult for you off the ice and then you were still playing in the NHL, your captain of the Marlies. Like, how are you able to actually do that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, <clears throat> I guess I would say that, uh, this might sound like completely arrogant and conceited, but you know, extremely good athlete and having youth on my side. And so that played something to do with it. Um, I don't really, you know, try to envision a life of me <laughs> in addiction, trying to play professional hockey at my age now. Uh, I, if I were to do that, I'd say it probably wouldn't go very well, but you know, being, being really young, full of energy, full of, you know, uh, all that stuff carried me. And then if, you know, for the people that <clears throat> kind of like to entertain more of a, a like a, a meta or bigger picture, then they would probably understand if I said something like a higher power, care, like carrying me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of like the just sort of like the way it was meant to be right and, you know the, whatever people I know that there's people that are into religion and God and spirituality and all the things science and whatever but just the greater you know something bigger moving me along and kind of carrying me through my life and taking me places I need to experience so you know I guess that's my best way to answer it um I was never, I never missed anything in my addiction. I never missed a practice. I never missed a bus. I never missed a meeting. I'd sleep in my car sometimes outside the arena. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, just cause I had been out all night in whatever and nothing that I'm proud of, but it's funny once I got sober and uh, I've missed meetings. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, hey, what's up? Oh, that's too funny. I've been, late. I've been late to things. Wow. But you're healthy. That's the most important thing. Yeah, I'm healthy and I don't, I, I mean, I don't lie. Yeah. So like people trust me now. So right. caught in the snowstorm and I snoozed my alarm or I slept through my alarm and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be late. They're like, okay. Yeah, it is what it is. But I, it's funny, like I never missed anything. Like I, yeah. I it's crazy. I could have been up for, you know, two, three days on like a Coke bender. And I remember when I was in Barry, 19 years old, playing for the Barry Colts, my nose started gushing blood on the ice just randomly. And I looked around and I was like, I should probably like pretend I got hit with a stick. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I had slept yet that week. And it's crazy, like that year, if you like tracked my progress through junior hockey and people that like to keep score, it was like my most productive I've ever been. Now, you know, I was 19 years old playing against like 16, 17 year olds. So that had something to do with it. But I, yeah, I guess yeah. in a long, like that's a long winded answer of like, I don't know how I did it. Yeah, no, listen, I mean, to, you know, to each their own and it's was sort of a blessing and a curse. And I was going to say because of that. 
Um, I know at one point in the documentary, you had one of your coaches, Marty Williamson, basically come up to you and say that he knew basically what you were doing off the ice and he didn't want you to be another statistic. A, were you surprised that he knew? And B, was there a part of you that wanted to sort of come forward and be like, I need help? Or you were just at the space where you're like, screw it. Like, I'm fine. Everything's okay. Um, it's interesting. I'm about to see Marty tomorrow. Oh, wow. Okay. Tomorrow. I was like, oh, not today. <laughs> yeah. I'm about to see Marty tomorrow. He's coaching Barry again. I think he, he's, he moved to other organizations. Anyways, he's back to head coach Barry. And he reached out to me and just asked if I would come talk to the Colts. And I was like, yeah, I'm on, I'm on break all week for, for the all-star break. And um, I, I, I vividly remember that meeting with Marty where he, he, you know, those words stick out. Like you're going to be a statistic. Right. And Marty was probably one of the first people outside of my immediate family. He probably even got a, maybe a better perspective on what was really going on because, you know, it was hard for me to hide things at that point in Barry. And he, um, he, he, he just, he was one of those coaches who just looked at you and, and looked at you more than a player. And although I only played for him a year, I, I, I can wholeheartedly say that, like, I, I'll never forget the way he treated me. And I felt everything he said. And I wasn't in denial at that point. Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember at that point in my life, I remember either having conversations with myself and maybe those around me, I knew that it had gone to the point where I would, I couldn't just stop on my own. And I was like, is this going to do more damage? Sorry. Is it, you know, you know what I mean? Like I knew I was going to need to remove myself from society and go to like treatment or like major, major uh, outpatient program of therapy or something like that. And I was in complete acceptance of that. And I knew this, I knew the score and I knew what needed to happen. And and I think he did too. So I wasn't mad at him. Like I looked at him and I, it, there was probably like, in my mind seemed like a, a minute pause, but it was probably in, in reality, like two to three seconds. And I was like, yeah, I know, but I'm like, you could do whatever you want to me. Like you could sit me out. He sat me out for a game. I ended up getting, uh, this wasn't in the film, but I had like basically a day off in Barry and I was like two to three complaints to the police came. Wow. And he's just like, I, I need to sit you out. Like you can't go into the play. I can't let you do this. And so he did do things that, you know, he didn't turn a blind eye to anything. And he asked me to, if I wanted help. And I just wasn't, it's not that I wasn't ready. I was just, I was ready. I just didn't want to. You just didn't want to. Yeah. That I, wanted to play, wasn't there. I wanted to play. I got, it's like, I wanted to play Russian roulette. I was like, I had a very destructive uh, way of thinking. Right. A lot of anger, a lot of resentment, depression zero tools how to deal with any of it 
my only tool I had to deal with it was like work harder, work right. hard, go harder, make, you know, I wasn't making money at the time, but I was like working towards that. And yeah. And I was going to say, you know, something in, in the movie that was interesting and it just, I think it's accurate, at least from what I've learned about recovery and addiction and mental health is um, you did go to treatment once in Toronto and you, I, you went through the sort of the whole program and it, it didn't work. And it seemed like you just weren't ready. You didn't want to, you know, employ what they told you. Um, eventually you went back to the same place and it did work and it sort of just clicked. And what was that difference like for you? Cause I assume it was sort of the same advice, the same people, the same tools, what in it clicked for you to be like, all right, I'm, I'm going to take this seriously. This is my path to sobriety and this is what I want to do. Yeah, that's a good observation by you because it's something that, that I did. Uh, am I talking too loud? No, I did. Um, it was, that's exactly that went, that's what went through my mind. It's like, it was such a transfer of my competitive athlete, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like your perspective. It's like, if you're gonna, you know, box someone and you're in a fight, like everyone knows that Conor McGregor UFC fighter and not everyone, but he went through a period where, you know, he, he, he lost to one fighter, Nate Diaz at a specific weight, la weight class at a, you know what I mean? And he lost and he's so competitive and has so much belief. He's like, we're doing the rematch. Yeah. And everyone was like, all right, well, you got to make him fight at a lower weight class because you're smaller and make him come down and fight your fight. And he's like, no, 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 no. I want that fight at the same weight class, the same way. So I guess, you know, I speak in the sport term because most people <laughs> are in the sports. So I mean, it was like, I needed to see the same weight class. I knew I was ready and the change was that I was, I had experienced enough pain. Like I went to the point where I'm like, I'm going to kill myself. I'm, I'm either going to kill myself. I'm going to kill someone. I'm going to like go to jail. Like I had looked all those things like so close in the eye, very, very experienced them without having it happen. And I had experienced enough pain. Uh, I don't really like like cliches, but in the recovery world, I guess they call it a moment of clarity or rock bottom or acceptance, surrender. And I just had hit it. I, you know, I had hit it. Although they do say like, it can always get worse, right? Like I'm not oblivious to that, but in that moment I hit it and I'm like, I got to go back. And I don't know if it's like, maybe like some sort of, other thing that I have, like maybe like an OCD or something like obsessive. I'm like, I need to go back. It's gotta be the same, same structure, same scenario, same, same fight. And then I'm going to win. Like and I'm you're going to win. You're going to yeah, do yeah. it. And you've done it. And well, you've done it. Doing it. Yeah, no, which is fantastic. And I think you're what, 11 years sober at this point. Yeah. Coming up on 12 shortly, but wow. I, I think. I think that um, I think that to bring a competitive mindset into that wouldn't be very smart. That's not. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. Like, so my perspective uh, on it is just 
very much like in the day. I actually try not to, you know, I think in the beginning, like it was good for me to see the, see the rewards and like my brain getting all that dopamine response and all the love and, and stuff like that. And I think that's very important for addicts. Um, it helps with self-esteem and it feeds all that stuff that the drugs and the alcohol did, but <clears throat> I just, yeah, it's just such a, it's such a long road Yeah. That I'm getting better at it and just breaking it down into the day. And I think that, you know, I acknowledge that I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And when I say that I do it not because, you know, I'm like stuck in the war stories and like stuck in that old story. Like I've reframed it in my mind, like my definition of an alcoholic and an addict when I say that, the things that go through my mind are someone who's responsible, someone who's an adult, someone who cares about others, someone who, you know, wants to help. Like I've reframed the definition right. of a an addict. No, and I think that that's important and, it, and it's your definition and sort of you've grown to adopt and, and to live a path of sobriety that's important to you because you know, what I think is so important is like every person has a different path and there's going to be different triggers for people. Um, and an important thing I wanted to ask you about is family, family and friends support, because that is something that's really important to me over at the nonprofit. And um, I think a lot of people don't understand, you know, the weight that it brings on family and friends of, of loved ones suffering. It's, it's a lot to deal with. Um, how has the support of your family been an influence and been able to, you know, really support you and be there for you, especially now, you know, 10, 11, almost 12 years later on, on your sobriety path? I'm very lucky. I mean, I don't, there, you know, not everybody has the support of their parents and their brothers and their, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, and I've, it couldn't be any better for me. Like I, I'm very, very lucky, very fortunate. Um, and that's something that I try not to uh, go unaddressed, very grateful, but also to like be sensitive, right? Because some people don't have that. Right. And, um, you know, uh, so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want them to like get triggered because there's people that have overcome far dire situations than I have. And I think that's something that I've learned over the years. Um, um, so I'm just trying, I try to be sensitive about that, but also at the same time, you know, I'm very grateful and the love and support I've received from everybody uh, has clearly made a huge impact in my life. Yeah, no, and I think it was special. Like it was really nice in your documentary to see the relationship that you have with your family and, you know, your your parents have every photo of you and every jersey from, you know, you playing hockey. And it was nice to see the relationship with your brother. And I know, especially with the scene that you were talking about driving the car, it seemed like neither of you really knew what was going on, but you just knew like my brother's gonna get me there. And it's nice to have sort of that support system. And I can only imagine for folks who don't have that. Um, I was going to say now switching sort of from the uh, addiction realm to more of hockey, 
I'm a huge hockey fan. I'm from Toronto. Um, how is it being the captain of the Marlies and hearing the roar of people, except in, obviously with COVID, it's a little bit different, but like, what is it to be able to like attain sort of your dream? Um, I know for me, I was talking before, I always knew I wanted to work uh, in DC and work for the government. Um, and when I got to do that, it's like, it's the best thing ever. And you find real purpose in that. So what's that been like for you? Um, my, yeah, my last, uh, seven years just being here in Toronto playing um playing for the Marlies has been amazing uh it's funny like I never thought I I never really thought that that would happen playing in in my home city yeah and I would be lying if I sat here and told you like my dream was to be you know essentially played predominantly most of my career in the American Hockey League I I wanted to be like a you know, I wanted, when I was in Nashville, I was like, all right, I'm going to play here for 10 years and I'm going to retire in Nashville and have a house in Brentwood and <laughs> go to, you know, brunch on like, you know what I mean? <laughs> all and those then, Nashville things. And then life happens. And then it's, it's just, it, it, it's part of that thing I alluded to earlier, right? Like the bigger picture and all that stuff. So it's cool. Like I, I, I love it. It's awesome. I mean, I never cared about being named captain of, of the team and uh, I wasn't captain for a long time and that was cool. I mean, I've always just been myself and I, I think that um, it's been interesting for people who have had like an up close look at what's been going on in Toronto, right? It's such a change and everybody's literally different now like other than some people on the staff one of you know my co one of my coaches AJ McLean who you know I love and then some of the some of the prospects were there a little bit early on but everyone's different so it's like it's like I've been traded yeah yeah uh, it's cool like I I'm learning things and 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 you like, I guess I would compare my experience in hockey to someone who, you know, like any, like I've, I've been, I've been looking at hockey from a, like studying the game of hockey probably since I was 10 years old and I'm almost 35. So 25 years, maybe even earlier. And every day I learned something new. And every day I like something changes. Uh, and so it's probably what's given me longevity to stick with it. Cause it's been hard, right? I've, you know, just grinded out like roles on teams, you know, not playing yeah. very much, but like doing what it takes and finding different ways to be effective. But uh, it's fun. Like I, I'm very proud of the fact that that I played for the Marlies and that they, you know, picked me to be captain last year and this year. And I'm just trying to enjoy every day. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following the Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.